WhatsApp messages had started pinging simultaneously on seven phones at 10.30 p.m. on March 31st, suddenly stopping at 11.30 p.m. Then at 5.40 a.m. the messages resumed, soon to be followed by this at 6.45 a.m. And we're ready to go. I just need to get myself in costume. It was noon when I drove from Reykjavik with cameraman Vilnius Petrikas and a bathtub in a trailer heading for the town of Akarnes. Having driven 40 minutes past the windy neighborhood of Kjallarnes, nestled between the sea and the base of a mountain, then through the tunnel under the fjord Kvalfjörður, we arrived at the edge of the small town, synonymous with Irish settlers, soccer, bicycle theft and cement. Now, the last two claims to fame are perhaps fading, as the theft of bicycles, unusually high in earlier years, has decreased, and the cement factory has recently shut down. The shutdown was perhaps not like closing Boeing in Seattle, Apple in Cupertino, or perhaps a coal mine in West Virginia, but the cement factory was still an important job provider in Akarnes, with 100 full-time jobs in a town that has been steadily growing, and now has close to 7,000 inhabitants. Its presence was perhaps in a way felt visually by its defining chimneys, 68 meters tall, and clearly visible from the capital Reykjavik across the bay. The factory was built in 1956 to 58 and marked a turning point for Icelandic domestic construction, which had for a thousand years suffered the lack of local building materials. The local production of cement ceased in 2012, and the company became an importer only. Finally, in December of 2017, an agreement was reached between the town and a contractor to start tearing down what had once been the largest structures in Iceland, including giant metal pipes, chimneys and buildings. As of April 1st, 2018, the demolition was far from over and had created the landscape that fit perfectly for an idea that video artist Kitty Von Sometime was about to execute. And that's why Vilnius, five other people, a bathtub, 504 plastic eyeballs and I were in Akarnes. We drove the broken road, of course made of cement, past the giant concrete walls of the factory with the ocean and a famous beach on our left-hand side. The small, very much independent production had been given permission to film and use of a mechanic shed as a base camp through the day. The video in making was for the band Kerai, a London-based anonymous collective of music producers and artists with a focus on the asexual nature of their members. Kitty moved from London, where she worked as a graphic studio design manager, to Iceland in 2006, having been a frequent visitor since 2000. In Iceland, she moved into the tech industry, including the gaming company CCP. As side careers, she's DJed and done web design, but a career of art directing, choreographing, producing, and various other roles needed to make video art is closest to her heart. Me being on set on that April Fool's Day was not in the role of pure observer, as when Joan Didion wrote about John Wayne on the set of The Sons of Katie Elder, her writing published in the book Slouching Towards Bethlehem. As on any production, roles are very important, and my roles were in order of importance to transport the bathtub, make coffee, prepare lunch, and be a runner, do what needed to be done. My recording of a podcast, on the other hand, was secondary, but kindly agreed to. I started making black tar coffee inside the shed, 
which was probably a generic version of any mechanic shop anywhere in the world. This generic version had a tall ceiling, calendar with women in bikini, suggestively eyeing whoever needed to know the days of the month, big wrenches, ashtrays, smell of oil, and cigarettes. It's, oh, dude. When did you, when did you get up this morning? Uh, about five. And um, felt like puking. <laughs> I'm very tired. And it's just you in a, in a what, post-apocalyptic? Post-apocalyptic world, and there's no other creatures. There's just these heads, and the creature is collecting these heads to be intimate with. Tota, tisatna. Everyone's ready for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, here, come on. with you. The crew, aside from Kitty as director and talent, consisted of Nicolas Peter Thor Helgason and Vilnius Petrikas in charge of cinematography. Alexia Roskilvadóttir was in charge of costume, but she was also the costume designer. Kristin Arnar Sigurðsson handled props, Daniel Lieb was assistant camera, and Tóta van Helsing, production and location manager, responsible for our surroundings. Uh, this is an old cement factory in Akranes. Um, which is being torn down, so it's actually really post-apocalyptic vibe now. It's really amazing to be here. And challenges to work in this place? Um, we're hoping not to die if the wind gets, you know, crazy around here. It looks really dangerous, but I mean, it has been like this for a couple of months now, so it has been through some crazy storms like this. So it's not gonna go anywhere. It hasn't gone anywhere now. So yeah, we're, it's fine. Knock on metal. Uh, yeah, it's the only thing we have around here. <laughs> the location, a word used in its English form, even on Icelandic productions, is epic to say the least. Free of the grand nature, which has made the country a prime location for otherworldly movie locations. This, on the other hand, was purely man-made on a scale that is unusual in Iceland. As I walked the open-air corridor between buildings towards the crew, I thought of Chernobyl, Berlin Wall, Escape from New York, the Rust Belt, Detroit 2010, and Black Hawk Down. Along with the still-standing buildings, rubble and debris, puddles and dirt, concrete and metal entangled shapes, now littered an area that used to be an active operation, a workplace, creating most of the cement needed for the Icelandic market. Now, a bunch of people with cameras were creating art based on a brown human-like sea creature with hundreds of straws sticking out of its head. Kitty's character, which costume designer Alexia had painstakingly made over a two-month period, was originally based on a creature at the beginning of life on Earth, inspired partly by the drawings of Ernst Hackel, but developed into a post-apocalyptic concept. I rushed back to the shed to my defined role of preparing lunch and cleaning out large water buckets needed to fill the bathtub in its final location inside the large empty factory building. The bath was to be the last shot of the day, the most painful but perhaps the most important, as there was no second chance with only one available costume, 
Before that moment would come, with its share of pain, the crew filmed in various locations within the location. My use of movie jargon here might be failing me, but they filmed various scenes. On a completely different scale, the crew of the Fast and the Furious, a Hollywood mega-franchise of now eight action movies focusing on explosions, street-raising muscles and sexy women, filmed here in 2016. We were as far from the successful billion-dollar formula as possible, with Kitty's sea creature slowly inching her way through the rubble, collecting human rubber heads. A scene that would have truly messed with the mind of muscle man Dominic Toretto, played by Vin Diesel. After a lunch of chicken, broccoli, soup and sandwiches, the crew went through the shot list, which included filming with the camera handheld on a tripod, and of course, from the newest and most popular cinematic gadget, the drone. As I wandered around and walked up concrete steps full of broken glass, the drone hovered outside the broken windows, and suddenly it felt like a scenario from an episode of Black Mirror. Me expecting the drone to see me, spot me, and shoot me, cut me, or some other neutralizing action. Time can either fly or creep forward on set, depending on what's going on. Like an army, not every moment is a battle, and often there are politics and struggles going on behind the scenes, from the highest to the lowest ranks, often unbeknown to other departments. There can be a lot of waiting on set, as various departments get ready, angles are discussed, actors get makeup, runners are sent out or called in, lights adjusted, wireless mics readjusted, but on this set, the talent, or sea creature Kitty, sat waiting in a white plastic chair in a giant empty cement warehouse as the light quickly faded, something cameraman Vilnius was fully aware of. I think we're starting to lose a little bit of light, but uh, if we move now, I think we could get all the shots. We measure light in filmmaking by light stops, so in like half an hour we're gonna be, we're gonna start losing light like one stop per 15 minutes. Finally, cameras were ready for the one-take scene, and the moment came for Kitty to lay down in the 10 degrees Celsius water, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Cameras rolled, as they say, the drone flew, and Kitty's breathing was as you would expect as the seconds turned to six minutes in the cold water. Finally, the word an actor can dread or look forward to, cut. Okay, how do After giving her last artistic orders. Can you get some close-ups of just the eyeballs if you can and swirl them around? Ran to base camp, dried off and did what she could to warm up with Tota Van Helsing adding her seventh title for the day, Leg and Thigh Hugger. Oh, look, no, no, I need to just put socks on. We're going to jump up and down. We're going to jump up and down and up and down. Yeah, you're too cold, baby. You're too cold. You're way too cold. If it wasn't for Tota between your thighs, you could I'm giving her hat right now. But aside from the effects of the cold, there was a clear emotional effect of not having created the video for two and a half years. I was scared it wouldn't be what I wanted it to be. And? 
and it's <laughs> but I just had a long period of being a bit paralyzed and it's really good to get over it this way cement factory in the shoot behind us I met up with Kitty in Reykjavik to ask her about her main creative outlet the weird girls project a mixture of dance, music, performance art, and costume dress-up aimed at strengthening positive body image of women. She started the project after an experimental video and photo shoot where she recreated Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, along with a group of female friends, as a space where they could free themselves and feel comfortable. We discussed the reasons behind and the effects of not having done a Weird Goals episode for two and a half years. It was like swings and roundabouts. From, it's so funny, I'm like talking like my mom. <laughs> Swings and roundabouts between frustration, sad, a deep sadness, and feeling like something was missing. And then actually a fear that I would never do it again, never make anything again, that it was unachievable. Conversely, it's easier for me to say what it felt like once I started making this piece. Like, a, so cheesy, but I felt like I was alive again. Like, I really was. I was, like, alert late at night with this thing to do. Um, I felt a little bit like I checked out of a certain part of me for the last few years. And it was, in a way, it was needed so I could heal from some other stuff. As soon as I see on the monitor what I had in my head, it's like I'm ready to do another one tomorrow. I'm ready to do another one now. Well, describe it. What's the feeling? Like I'm flying. I don't know. Like, it is his confidence, I think. The confidence from having made 24 successful episodes was not only limited by the uncertainty resulting from her two and a half years' absence, but the reality of limited or no funding, meaning that participation is often and mostly on a volunteer basis for everyone, from crew to performers and post-production. I actually felt very little inside and um, embarrassed to ask people to work for nothing again. And it's part of why I hadn't made one. I hadn't made one because I was trying to like balance my life and I was getting divorced and I was trying to get to a point where me and my child actually had a home that I wasn't gonna get thrown out of yet again in under a year because of the rental market. So it was log logistically, it was because of those reasons, but also just for that. And I didn't realize how much it affected me until I started to ask around for help on this one. She has had bigger productions with funding, including a Blue Lagoon commission, a Converse-sponsored shoot in China, though most have been in a DIY, guerrilla-style production, many of the participants having become like a tight-knit crew, and yes, the metaphor of sailing rough seas, seasickness, and possibly landing at a personal magical place if the ship does not sink beforehand. So far, all crew are accounted for. The positive effects for those participating towards themselves and their bodies has gained the project some recognition, including through Unifem, commercial brands, and through journalists when they spotlight the well-known Icelandic feminism in its various forms. Alongside the positive changes when it comes to countering unrealistic body image, there are challenges facing the younger generation now. I think the pushback against the media image presenting an unattainable goal. The pushback is bigger. The pushback has got more corporate companies involved. The pushback against it is more vocal. There's a 
tons of articles and accounts and projects and brands now who support not just showing, you know, this unattainable image, but how important your image is, especially for young people, has become worse. We are one of the last generations who remembers what it's like to not have an internet presence. The pressure of an internet pr presence, the amount of preoccupation with having that great Instagram shot is so dense. There are so many websites that, like a social websites where girls go on to literally kind of almost compete in their anorexia and and to the, the response to how many likes you get and, and also the ability to humiliate another person when you take a bad photo, when you're talking about teenagers where they're developing a sense of self. It's very worrying and I would say from that angle, our, our current obsession with self-image has, has grown uh, to the detrimental angle. I really hope it's like a pendulum and we filter out of it a bit, that we will accept that this platform is there that we will understand it's there and that we will utilize it. But I feel like it would be great if it can be become boring. And so, in the face of the obsessions of the Insta generation, dependency on continuous positive online feedback, what does the Weird Ghost Project offer? It's showing a different way of doing it, that you can be fucking cool and whatever, these cheesy, you know, things, but you, it's not, it's not just you being assessed in your daily life. It's different. It's art as well. It's, it's making something, utilizing that platform. The initial push with the Weird Girls Project is still kind of relevant in that we only see this very airbrushed angle a lot of the time in most advertising, in most music videos, in most whatever. Everybody's so cool, everybody's so whatever. And, and it's supposed to be so that if you don't feel like you fit that, the project is supposed to be there to show you that you can still be part of this kind of stuff, that you can still, you're not excluded. You're not excluded for being you. With those words, we roll further into the digital age and its various complications, hoping that true beauty will outshine superficiality. That is the end of this episode of Stories from the In Atlantic. If you'd like to check out Kitty's new video for the band Kerai, which you hear playing right now, or see some of the Weird Girls episodes, there will be a link on our website, storiesfromtheinatlantic.com. But until next time, take care and goodbye.